Good evening, SCA. It's great to be with you. Uh, I'm the college minister again over at Cross Point Church. This is my first time here, so I'm excited to be able to walk through the word with you. I want to share a little bit about myself before we jump in. I've been in this role over at Cross Point for about seven months. I was previously here as a student, graduated way back in 2009. And then after that, did a couple of years as a, as a resident over at Cross Point doing college ministry. And then for the last 10 years, I've been in various churches serving in youth ministry and in college ministry and young adult ministry. All this way of saying, I have a lot of experience in college ministry, and I love, I love your students. Students, I love watching you walk with Jesus, but most of all, I love Jesus and watching you encounter him and watching you dive into his word. And that's what we're going to do tonight. I've been married to my wife. Hey, Elizabeth, let's wave. I've been married to her for 10 years. Uh, we don't yet have kids, but we're in the adoptive process. But we do have two cats. We have an adorable eight-pound little cat named Chloe. And then we have a ginormous big fella named Sir Purr. He's 22 pounds. I'm a Carolina Panthers fan. And so I named him Sir Purr. Uh, he looks just like Sir Purr. It's a uh, spitting image. Um, we met in college ministry and served together. She's incredible, wonderful, kind, and insanely smart. She works as a biomedical engineer and got a degree at Clemson with uh, Kim E. On the other hand, I'm quite the opposite. I majored in communication studies. No offense if you're majoring in that. And I, I rolled into marriage with no job, literally $14 in the bank account and a ton of debt. But she loves me anyway. It takes a lot of personality to overcome that. How many of you, when you started Clemson, uh, so students specifically you, how many of you were excited, passionate about your major, and even the future career you hoped would be there at the end? You started excited. That is a little less than I anticipated. I'm a little worried. Keep your hand up. No, this is important. Keep your hand up. How many of you still feel that way now? There are a few of you who are honest. The rest of you can put your hands up. And I, if your parent is here and you were really honest about not having passion for it, kudos to you. Bravery. This idea of lost passion and desire happens to a lot of us with all sorts of things. You came to Clemson. You were wanting to go to med school at the end. You want to be an engineer. You wanted to be a teacher. But the daily realities of that pale in comparison. Whoa, sorry about that. The daily realities of that pale in comparison to the expectations you built. I felt it with my major in college. Whoa, I'm going to pull that away. And I think there's a handset down here. I'm just going to go ahead and flip over to the handset. If that's okay, I think we'll all be fine with that. We're good. All right. I felt that way. I did not enjoy communication studies. My uh, hopes and dreams for what I would accomplish that faded to the background, which is why I entered into marriage with $14 in the bank account, and it took a long, long time to get full-time employment. But even with all that being said, it doesn't matter if it's school. My wife, she was a swimmer at Clemson when they had a swim team, and she went that for a little bit. The loss of passion, the loss of the why you do something. But tonight, y'all, this isn't a, prep a pep talk. I'm real sure you can figure out what your loss of passion is and figure out how to address it. This is not a pep talk tonight. It's a way of understanding that sometimes what we're excited about fades away. And most of you, you profess to be a Christian. And so the question is for you, have you ever experienced this loss of passion, this loss of the why you want to do something in regards to your faith? You love Jesus, Jesus saved you, but the passion is leaving. 
or even gone. Your Bible hasn't been touched in weeks. Jesus feels far away. You attend or even if you're leading a small group, that's a chore to even do or attend. School is bombarding you each day and you suffer in silence each day with things of life that no one else knows about. Even the temptations and sins of Clemson's campus now feel more attractive than following Jesus. All Christians will go through a valley like this, but why? I could list a lot of reasons. We could walk down through them, but in the end, what I have found at times in my own heart and my own battles with that and what I've seen in others is that we've lost the beauty of Jesus. So everything that I'm about to say, I'm sure most of you have heard before. There's very little new, but again and again, I have found that my faith is refreshed and sustained when I consider who Jesus is. That's his nature. I consider what Jesus does in his work, and I consider why Jesus loves his heart, his nature, his work, and his heart. And when I lose one of the three or I divorce them from each other, I begin to struggle. This semester, FCA will walk through the back half of the Gospel of John, beginning in John chapter 10, simply studying the book, letting the scripture, letting the word do the work, to see Jesus' nature, to see his heart, to see his work. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip to John chapter 10. If you're on your phone, do that as well, John chapter 10. It's important that we do a little bit of background on John and, and don't just jump straight into the text. John was a close disciple, follower of Jesus, an eyewitness who wrote this about 50 years after Jesus' earthly ministry. And while every book of scripture has purpose, John's gospel may be the clearest. John chapter 20, it might be on the screen or you can flip to it at the end. John chapter 20, verse 30 says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I rarely, when I talk, show self-restraint. I believe that more words are better. I am going to show self-restraint and not be a total nerd about this, but literally every detail of the Gospel of John was written so you and I would know that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior of the world, that he's truly God and truly man. He has come in love to forgive sin and give eternal life, to believe in the nature, heart, and work of Jesus. This is the point of John's Gospel, and it brings us to chapter 10. In chapter 10, Jesus is talking to some Pharisees. And if you're unfamiliar with what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee was a religious leader of God's covenant people, and they were supposed teachers of God's word, scripture, to his people, Israel. Primarily working from the Old Testament, they're, they're looking at the scriptures, they're understanding his word, they're understanding his law. And they get into an argument with Jesus to cut to the point of it because Jesus claimed to be God he performed unexplainable miracles, and he claimed to forgive sin. Who did this Jesus think he was? Only God can do that. Would God truly, would God freely forgive dirty sinners? No way. He's too holy. He's too good to actually say the things he's saying, to actually do the things he's doing, to draw near to sinners in that way. But claiming to be wise, these Pharisees actually lost the nature of God, the heart of God, and the work of God in Scripture. The Bible, Scripture, is ultimately God's self-revelation to us through human authors in which he reveals himself and our need for him. 
Beginning with the Old Testament, all the way back in Genesis, God created humanity, Adam and Eve in his image, for life, peace, and prosperity. But humanity rebelled against God, called sin. And our world descended into death and decay. All the suffering, all the pain, all the anguish we feel ultimately is the result, maybe not of our personal sin, but of the existence of sin and the existence of our rebellion against the holy God. Through scripture, we read that God will righteously judge sin and that rebellion against God deserves death. But this is where the Pharisees stopped. Before coming to faith in college, I stopped there too. I professed to be a Christian, but I was judgmental and arrogant. I hated, hated the people who sinned. I hated the people who were hooking up. I hated the people who would party. I hated the people who would go out and get drunk. I hated, I hated them. Never mind, I could probably not find the party to save my life, but I hated them with every fiber of my being. How could they do the things that they were doing? Didn't they know God wanted righteousness? Didn't they know that God wanted the right way? But in being this way, I failed to see my sin in the kindness of God because scripture keeps going. And in fact, even what the Pharisees read, beginning from Genesis, they missed something too. God judges sin, but from the very beginning, Scripture shows God's heart towards undeserving sinners. True love, compassion, grace, and mercy. He would love people and also judge sin in full because he would one day send someone to redeem people from sin and to create a people to call his children, all out of love, no one deserving. These Pharisees were spiritually blind. This is the story of the Old Testament. Never mind what we have in full now, but this is the story of the Old Testament. It's there, you can open it and read it. But these Pharisees were spiritually blind and it led to them misleading and even hurting the people they were supposed to be leading. So now we're at the first six verses. Seeing their misunderstanding and their harmful teachings, Jesus begins to explain his nature, his heart, and his coming work. He is a shepherd coming to rescue helpless sheep, sinners like you and me. And in verse seven, in just a second, we'll explore that in full. Tonight, I'm gonna talk to the Christian first. Tonight, I don't know how you're doing, I don't know if you're thriving in your faith or if you're struggling, but John's gospel was written to give faith, and if it was written to give faith, it can revitalize and sustain faith too. Jesus is the good shepherd. Some of you, though, you claim to be a Christian, but if you were to give an honest assessment at the end of what we're about to read, you'll see that you have not truly believed in Jesus. It's time to be honest. And then third, There are some of you, you are admitted non-Christians. You are under no guise that you claim to follow Jesus or believe in the scriptures. Thank you for being here tonight. It takes a lot of bravery to come into a room where the overwhelming majority of people do not agree with your worldview. So from the bottom of my heart, I'm so glad you're here. And and I don't know why you don't believe. Maybe it's objections to the faith. Maybe this all just seems kind of weird. Maybe it's shame from sin or hurts from professing Christians. But to echo John's purpose, I simply want you to see Jesus, his nature, his heart, and his work, and believe in him for eternal life. 
the big thing that I want you to take home tonight. Why are we here? It's because Jesus is the good shepherd. Trust him and rest in his love. Jesus is the good shepherd. Trust him and rest in his love. Let's first consider his nature. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Join me in verse seven. Jesus said again, truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. The life that he speaks here is eternal life. And so Jesus is making an incredible claim. In Jesus' time, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the concept of a sheep. I grew up in a very rural part of South Carolina, Dillon. If anyone's from Dillon County, not surprised. All right. No one's from Dillon County. That's cool. I am. I'm one of like three in the nation. But super rural, a lot of agriculture, a lot of farming, a lot of people who have animals. I know nothing about any of that. I have never been on a farm. I have never actually interacted with a sheep to my knowledge. But in Jesus' time, sheep were important for wool and nutrients. But they were also completely helpless with no real ability to defend themselves from wolves and thieves. Shepherds would guard them carefully as they were kept overnight in a four-walled pen. And each day, shepherds would let them out of a gate to graze for graze during the day for food, for nourishment, while the shepherd watched over and protected them. And at the end of the day, following their shepherd, the sheep would enter through a gate back into the pen where ideally they would be secure and find rest. The pen kept the sheep from straying. It allowed them to thrive. It was a barrier against predators and thieves. The shepherd protected the sheep. The gate was the entry to life and vitality. The relationship is a beautiful, tender relationship of patience with something that is helpless. But curiously, in verse 7, go back. Jesus first describes himself not as the shepherd, which we'll see in a minute, but as the gate. Why? This actually is not a super complicated concept. Like sheep, humanity is naturally helpless. We are helpless because we are hopeless. Our sin, our rebellion, again, it separated us from God and ruined the good world we see. You sin, I sin, we see sin every day, and we see the consequences of sin every day. Think about campus. Think about your friend group. Think about parent. Think about your workplace. Think about your HOA. Think about all of that. Lies, gossip, Pride, lust, ruined relationships, broken trust, wounded hearts, conflict, anger, jealousy, oppression, and injustice. Inwardly, we know, we ache because we know there is something better. But Jesus is clearly saying that he is the gate to life, the entryway to all the healings of our aches, sins, and trials. But naturally, naturally, there's a problem. We being both helpless and hopeless, we stray from God and we will literally run to anything to ease the ache, to ease the pain, to soothe our consciences, but we won't run to him. Verse eight, Jesus says curiously again, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. It's not referring to the Old Testament. Jesus's world was incredible, 
but there were a lot of messianic pretenders who would come around, false teachers of foreign religions, and in this context, too, people who proclaimed to be leaders of God's covenant people, but who abused and were cruel to God's people. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. And these teachers, these leaders, these false religions offered false hopes that not only couldn't deliver, but in verse 10, have come to kill and destroy. The things in their context that the people ran to or were oppressed by did not give life, they took it. And Jesus is saying that he and he alone gives life. But we don't live 2,000 years ago, and we live on this side of the completed scriptures. But the point is still true. On this campus, in our community, most may not be looking at other religions, though there are some, but so many around us are giving ourselves to things that are thieves and robbers. Where do people, where do people in your friend group, in your network, at your work, even you yourself, look to for ultimate comfort? What do you think you cannot live without? What do you think will ultimately satisfy you and give you approval in someone else's eyes, give you hope beyond despair? Because even Satan, even if that thing that you think was, I'm not going out and getting hammered, I'm not going out and partying. Even if it's not something sinful, Satan can even take something good and corrupt it and make that thing that is good a weight and a barrier and a destroyer of life, making false hopes and promises. If we looked around here, even in this room, even in our churches, Around campus, we'd find people who are looking to their moral inward righteousness, like me, claiming to be a Christian, but consumed that I was a good person. I thought, I believed, I voted the right way. But I can't outweigh the sin of my thoughts, words, and actions, and neither can you. I can't possibly remove the guilt for all I've done. Who look to relationships, who look to boyfriends and girlfriends to fill holes, to meet needs they were never designed to meet. And what incredible pressure we put on people when we do that. Who look to distractions, sex, partying, and pleasure that will, will create long-lasting emotional wounds and pains, who look to a job, who look to finances and look to degrees for this, this idea of accomplishment that will be enough, who look to followers, who look to comments, likes on platforms for approval that will be gone tomorrow. Y'all, verse seven, Jesus is the gate to life. Those things will not fill. They will kill and destroy. They will oppress, but he alone is the gate to eternal life and to life abundance now. But why is it him? He is making an exclusive claim. He is saying nothing else will do it, me and me alone. Look again at verses seven and nine. Jesus says, I am the gate. The I am is so easy to miss. Maybe I've met someone like this before. I'm sure you have. But there are people who, on a power trip, in some form of an argument, potentially going to be recorded, who at some point will, in the heat of the moment, look at you like, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? And the answer inevitably is no, and if I, probably, if I did actually know who you were, I wouldn't really care to begin with. I don't know why you're all hot and blustered about it, but no, someone who's doing that, they have this pretense that there is something so innate, so powerful about them that we should tremble in their presence. But notice how Jesus begins. Again, he says, I am. 
Y'all, these two words cannot be missed. I am, in John's gospel, there are seven I am statements that actually do communicate something important about Jesus. Grammatically, they allude to God's divine name as revealed to Moses in the Old Testament. In Exodus 3, it says, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The I am means, grammatically, it means the one who self-exists, who just is. The I am has no beginning and no end. He just exists, and through him, all things exist. Jesus here alludes and later demonstrates he's not just some religious teacher. Jesus is God, one being with the Father and the Spirit. He spoke all things into existence. The world is held in his hand. And this is the creator who we spurned in our sin, but he is the one who is now in this moment telling the audience, telling the Pharisees, telling you and me, though you spurned me, I am the one who is the gate to life. I am the one. And before we keep moving, when we see that Jesus says he is the gate to life, it calls us to respond in two ways. First, we turn from false hopes and false saviors. Anything but Jesus, in the words of verse 10, anything will steal your life, rob you, and destroy you. Doesn't matter if it's innocuous. Doesn't matter if it seems innocent. Doesn't matter if you think you can self-control it or not. Anything that's not him will ultimately consume and destroy us if we pursue it sinfully or if we wrongly prioritize it, replacing the giver with the gift. What is your hope? What do you think is going to forgive your sin? What do you give your purpose to? Maybe you're realizing, just hearing the words so far, that it's not Jesus. That you may lead a small group. They may have claimed to be a Christian for a long time. But maybe you love Jesus, but you're seeing that your heart is wandering. Turn to Christ and Christ alone and you will live and that leads us to the second thing, rest in the abundant life of Jesus. Y'all, being a Christian is not, uh, having an abundant life does not mean a life of ease. It's not riches. It's not an Instagrammable life. Very hard sometimes. There will be a lot of tears. You will experience a lot of hurts, even failures. But an abundant life is God drawing deep, you deeper into his heart as he continues to perform his great work on you. Ezekiel 34, we won't read it all right now, but it'll be on the screen. But in Ezekiel 34, there's this promise of one who will come. And look on the screen, look at the words of what this shepherd figure will do. He will seek the lost and let them lie down. He will bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. But he will have justice, that is, he will destroy the fat and the strong. He will lift up the oppressed, and he will put down the oppressor. Y'all, Jesus fulfilled these things that were written long before him. He will tend to his sheep. He will tend to you and me because he is the gate to life. If you struggle and stray, he will lead you back. He will guide you when you are hurt. He will bandage the wound. When you are weak, he will give you strength. Just take a deep breath and rest and rejoice that our Jesus is the gate to life in eternity and to an abundant life now on earth. But Jesus did more than just talk. 
he not only claimed to be the way to eternal life, his heart and his work prove it. The second thing we see in verses 11 through 21 is that Jesus gave his life to give life. Jesus gave his life to give life. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd, it says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, in contrast, contrast, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, he leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand, key words, and doesn't care about the sheep. You see the I am statement again. This is invoking the divine name. But now he's moving to his main emphasis, the shepherd. Jesus didn't just come to talk, he came to work. He claims to be a shepherd. A shepherd, again, protects the sheep, loves them so much, being willing to lay down the life when there is a threat. But in contrast, Jesus is telling us what he is not. He is not a hired hand. A hired hand is someone who gets paid to watch the sheep. They clock in, they clock out, but they have no true investment. They're just there to make bank. They bounce. And if danger comes, they're nowhere to be seen. How many of you have ever worked in retail or in the food service industry? Yeah, you're about to understand it real quick. Is it fun most days? No, it's not fun. Many years ago, I worked at the Anderson Target, T1198, Hardlines, part-time. Began a management track. I was a GSA. My, my position was so important, they cut it. Would you be surprised also to find out that you are in the presence of the November 2014 Vibe Employee of the Month? Yeah, yeah, and management did not give me a pay raise, but they did give me a plaque and a snack bag. Retail's not fun. There's a lot of stories to get this idea across, but there's one, there's one. I was once chastised by a customer wearing a Clemson ring we notice. If you yell at someone in retail, we notice. We'll find out where you go to church. We'll see your ring. We'll know. You know why she chastised me? Because checkout was taking too long. It wasn't my fault that you picked the busiest time of the day on a Friday. People in their 30s and 40s go shop at Target after work on Fridays as part of their date night. After she began to rip me a new one with you know, not yelling, but not happy. Her credit card was declined. Whose fault was that? Fine. Do you know why? Because her husband works at the issuing bank. Awesome. Great. I had lunch that day, probably Chick-fil-A. Great. Awesome. I'm not telling you random facts about myself. No. So, to make peace, this is what we do. Management allows me in a situation like that to make an, uh, to extend an olive branch, to move towards an apology. And I'm trying to, to be conciliatory, to mitigate the situation. So I do what I am allowed to do. I offer her a $3 coupon. That's the extent, which obviously makes her matter. And so then she says, well, I'm going to call corporate. Uh, and so she borrows my pen, and she starts to write down the details of the interaction and she's gonna report this guy named Brian to corporate. I mixed up the name tags that day because I couldn't find mine, so I grabbed a former employee's name tag and I was Brian that day. But I'm honest, so I was like, hey, just so you know, you're reporting Brian to corporate and he hasn't worked here in a month. I'm, I'm Jason. She did not like that either. She left in a huff. She was pretty irate. Vibe employee of the month. I did not win it that month. 
don't do what she did, but we gotta get moving. Anyone shocked why I wouldn't clock in a minute early? Anyone shocked where I would avoid staying late? Anyone shocked that I avoided these situations and I took every second of my break? No, no one should be shocked. Jesus is explicitly saying he is the opposite of that. He takes responsibility. He doesn't mind your inconvenience. He doesn't mind your problems. He doesn't get put off by your rebellion. He actually comes into that. You see, the good shepherd doesn't merely protect the sheep from violence. He enters into violence because the sheep are already in distress. He doesn't just offer the words to say he'll risk his life. He actually would give his life to save us, the sheep, because we were in distress. Our sin had separated us. We had been ravaged by sin and put our hope in anything but Jesus. But out of love, he comes for us. Because Jesus didn't just preach a message of salvation. He is salvation. Having come to die for us, he would take the penalty we deserved on the cross in our place. He would bear the judgment of God deserved for us, scorned as a sinner, having never sinned in his life, so that you and I could be forgiven and that his righteousness might be given to us. We were helpless and hopeless, oppressed by our sin, and Jesus came for us. Christian, rejoice in this good news. If your faith is stagnant, it's okay to admit it. Let your heart begin to heal by rejoicing in this good news. And if you are not a Christian, this shows how much Jesus loves you. But there's more, and it's about to get deeper. Verse 14 I am the good shepherd, divine name again. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Y'all, we got lawyers in the room. We got doctors in the room. We have future lawyers, future doctors, future engineers in the room. We have people in the room who can memorize hundreds and hundreds of play calls in their playbook. We have people in the room who can memorize incredible works of music. We have people in the room who can code apps that can send us all over the world into outer space. We have people in the room who can do so many of those amazing things. I can't do a one of them, but even if that's not you, all of us in the room can do something that would astound and leave everyone else speechless. All as a way of saying, you can hang in there with the next thought. Jesus says in verse 14, he is the eternal divine shepherd who dies for us, but there's more. I know my own and my own know me. To know is to not know a fact. It's, to know means this intimate, personal experience, a relationship of the deepest kind. Not buddies, it's a union in which we are so close to Jesus that we will be loved and held forever. It's a relationship so close it can never be separated where we are bound in love, in true, real harmony and relationship to Christ forever. But there's more put the hat on. I know my own and my own know me, verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. There's no way I can make this simple because this is a profound, profound truth that Jesus reveals. We have one God who is three full and separable equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When scripture says elsewhere that God is love, it is how he relates to his creation, but God has always existed within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in love toward one another. They know each other in a unique, incredible way. 
in a way that we can never imitate, in a way that can never be broken, that we can never, this side of heaven or that side of heaven, fully understand. But y'all, when Jesus saves us by laying down his life, he adopts us as sons and daughters to God, where in our experience, in our relationship with Jesus, we get a taste, a taste, a glimpse of the very love within the triune God that has existed for all eternity. This is why he gave his life for you. The good shepherd wants you to have a taste of the greatest thing you can ever know. And that is to have a glimpse of the love that has never had a beginning and that will never have an end. And the take home here, it's just to worship. It's just to be in awe that this is what the good shepherd does. Breathe that in. But there's more. Verse 16 but I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. God's love for his people, the sheep, it's an outgoing, outreaching love. He is bringing people in. Y'all, we have other brothers and sisters who have not yet come to faith and are going to come to faith. And the beauty of who they are is that they don't look anything like everyone else. They don't talk a language that we talk. They don't come from a culture that we come from. The body of Christ is diverse. People from every nation, tongue, and tribe on every continent. These are the sheep he's bringing into the sheepfold. Whatever your background may be, whatever culture, whatever people you may come from, the beauty of the body of Christ is that your brothers and sisters are from every nation, tongue, and tribe. He is bringing people into the fold. In verse 17, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it back up again. I receive this command from my Father. The Father loves the Son and has entrusted his full redemption to us. Jesus gave his life and he picked it back up again. Everything that he claims is now true because he has died and been resurrected again. He has the authority to give you eternal life. You can trust in the work and the heart and the nature of the Savior. He loves you. And when Jesus preaches, we have to respond. And the first response is that we repent and believe. In verses 19 through 21, we read something interesting. His immediate preaching was divisive. Some were outright rejecting him, thinking him insane. Others were kind of friendly to it, but we have the fullness of Scripture. And in the fullness of Scripture, we read, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. If you do not know Christ, if you have never put your faith or trust in him, if you do not, you will perish You will perish and spend eternity apart from him. But he is inviting you in. He is bringing you in. He has gone to lay down his life for you. Repent and you will be saved. Believe in him and him alone and you will be saved. Trust that what he gave is all that you would never, ever need to offer him. But believer, we also repent and believe because what saves us sustains us. We can't lose salvation. We can struggle We can forget the joy of an abundant life. We can have wayward feet, but when we continue to repent and believe, we are continuing to be drawn back into the heart of the Lord because he will never leave us or forsake us. And the second response here is to invite others into that life. Invite others into the love of Christ by sharing the gospel. 
Believer, there are sheep out there. They will come to faith. They are distressed. They are dejected. Christ has compassion on them, and he has tasked you to go and proclaim the message. Y'all have an evangelism training. Go and learn how to do it. You have 25,000 friends at Clemson who need to hear the good news. You don't know. You might see their sin, but the people who are lost on our campus, you don't know their story. You don't know their hurts. Not only can you say that there is someone who's forgiven your work, you can come and say, hey, there is someone who brings healing to where you are hurting. But think beyond, because evangelism, and it's not a thing we do, it's a lifestyle for a lifetime. Leverage your life, your career, your summer for the gospel. Go join a church plant when you graduate. Consider giving a year or two or even a career prayerfully to missions. Consider going into where people are marginalized and oppressed and bringing the hope of Christ to those communities. Invite others into the pen. There's one more aspect of the Savior's work. There's some time that has passed and Jesus' opponents in verse 22, they're still frustrated. And beginning in verse 25, his response will show what, why, we can, why we can trust him and continue to trust the nature of the work in the heart of Christ because Jesus will always love and protect his people. He will always love and protect his people. Down in verse 25, I did tell you and you don't believe, speaking of his previous claims, Jesus answered them, the works that I do in my father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because there are not, because you are not of my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand in proclaiming to be God, he says, I and the Father are one. My wife and I have fostered before, and we had a baby come into our home a couple of years ago for about eight months. Babies hate change. They hate disruption. So one day, I had to go out of town for a week on a mission trip. Completely ruined the routine. Our normal happy boy was frustrated. He was flustered because his routine was different. Something had happened. And so one day I finally got to call in. It took a couple of days, but I got to FaceTime in during bath time. And Big Fella loved bath time. It was splashing, there was laughing, the little rubber duck, but not this night. Just like all day, he was tired, he was fussy, and he was frustrated until something happened. Before he saw my face, he heard my voice. The cries turned to smiles. He was now laughing. He was splashing in the water. And though I had changed no diaper, though I had prepped no formula, and though I had slept through the night hundreds of miles away, I was a hero. I was the vibe father of the month. My voice made him happy. He would do the same for my wife all the time. She came from a different room or picked him up for a night because my voice, her voice, our voices, they meant something. They ultimately meant and symbolized relationship, love, and security. The Pharisees refused to hear Jesus' voice, but Christian, you have already heard it. In verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Believer, you have already heard the voice. This is not textually, this is not some mystical, audible experience where you hear God speaking to you. I'm not saying that if that's been your experience, that's invalid. I've never experienced that. But in this text, the Savior's voice, it's salvation. It's the union, the relationship that we have with Christ. His voice has already been heard. Y'all, 
If you know Jesus, follow him because you're already secure. Cast off the sin that entangles you. Lay your trial at his feet because he is the good shepherd. Believer, he has given you eternal life. You will not perish. You belong to him, for, to him today and forevermore. His hand is not too weak. His hand is too strong to let you fail. Verses 29 and 30, again, as explicitly as he'll say, he is God. He is one with the Father. He will not fail. The divine plan has been entrusted to him, not just at the crucifixion and the resurrection, but for all eternity. And praise God, one day, our faith will be made sight and we will dwell in the pasture of his love forever. Our band's gonna come out to close us. And as they come to lead us and shepherd us in the word, Christian, how do you follow Jesus? How do you walk in the love of the great shepherd? This is gonna seem really lame, and I get it. It's the same exhortation here almost in every sermon. Follow Jesus through the word, through scripture, prayer, and then the local church. Seems pretty basic. But maybe the reason why we struggle with scripture and in prayer, maybe the reason why the local church doesn't seem that big a deal is because we have separated the most prescribed scripture, prescribed exhortations in scripture from the work, the nature, and the heart of Christ. Read scripture because it is Jesus' self-revealed word given to us. The very giving of the word is love. You don't need a mystical experience. You have the word. You have his voice at salvation and you have the word in front of you. Pray. Pray because God wants us to express our need and our trust in him. Jesus loves to hear your voice. And he loves you so much that the voice that he wants to hear, he died for. Just pray to him and finally pursue him, follow him in the local church. By his design, our great shepherd did not leave us alone. He indwells us with the spirit and he gives us the local church made of the diverse body of Christ, people from every background, of every age, of every culture. Your relationship with Jesus is personal, but it is not private, it is corporate. You need other believers. You need people with different experiences than you. You need people farther along in life than you and you need people to pour into. This is how the great shepherd works. He works in the local church to help us see our sin, to encourage us when our faith is weak, and to again and again and again point us to the shepherd who will never leave us. Don't just attend church this week. Plug in. Believer, if you're thriving or you've forgotten the why, rejoice in who Jesus is. And if you're not a Christian today or perhaps you've realized that you've just done Christian stuff, but you've never responded to the already spoken voice of Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Turn, repent, and believe, and you will be saved to have life and life abundantly. Tonight, again, whenever the word is preached, we are called to respond. If you need prayer to talk to someone, I'm down front, but we have people wearing the glow sticks. They'd love to pray with you. We have a prayer room at the back. But as the gospel is speak, as preached, we have a responsibility to respond. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your grace. Father, help us 
to proclaim and believe in the good news again and again and again for the first time or for the most recent. Father, I pray that you'd bring salvation to those who are wayward and hurting. And I pray that stagnant faith would be revitalized and sustained faith would continue to move forward. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.